Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. I have so much going on, it's hard for me to even do this. I just need you to know I'm home for a day in between trips, and I'm doing taking the time to do this podcast, which most people would probably think is crazy. Uh, I'm hunched over in a very weird position in a place that I should never be doing a podcast, and uh, my Koss Port-A-Pro headset has finally died, and the left earpiece is dangling by a wire, so it's not even attached anymore. I have no idea if this is going to sound right, but I'm going for it anyway. Uh, the first thing, before we get to the hero in, this, in the lineup, I've got a lot to talk about. I think I've got a really good installment this week, but the first thing I want to hit is this whole Wuhan virus thing that's happening. It's pretty terrifying. Uh, I think Chinese state media historically has always downplayed these things to try to save face in a way. I'm hoping that that uh, is not the case this time. I think there's probably far more cases than people realize, and I think there's probably far more cases globally. I'm a bit worried because I've been reading up on the Trump administration's handling of the transition when they came into office, and places like the CDC, FEMA, et cetera, they just didn't have a plan. They don't have staffing. I've heard that the CDC is a bit adrift at the moment. And that is bad because I don't think any country in the world is prepared for a major outbreak. And these zoonotic diseases are really scary. And uh, if you're reading about some of the latest information about this virus, it is pretty pretty terrifying. And um, personally, I do not want to get on an airplane right now. Um, first of all, I'm burnt out on flying. I like being exploring my own local area, but I am in no... Uh, urge no rush to get on a plane these days. I think um, it's pretty scary. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be maybe unique to my lifetime. So we'll we'll stay tuned. Um, if any of you have any information about this, I'd love to hear it. So let me know. Uh, let's say, let's move on. Hero of the week. For any of you who are my age, you, you're, you're going to know this guy. Um, his name is David Lightman. And you might otherwise know him as Matthew Broderick. He was the main character in a movie that came out, I want to say, in 1983 or 84 called War Games. And War Games was the first movie that planted the seed of computers in my brain. Um, and I think for a lot of you out there, it might have done the same thing. Uh, my neighbors had the first Macintosh computer when it came out. Um, my parents were not into computers. I never had one as a kid. I never really, I never had a computer until I was out of college, if that'll, that's kind of scary, but think about that. My roommate had one in college, but it was just a word processor. It was enormous. It was like the size of a, a Buick Grand Prix, uh, and it did nothing other than word processing. So that was the extent of it. But David Lightman was the Matthew Broderick character, and uh, he's a kid who accidentally hacks into the uh, Defense Department and accidentally starts a fictitious uh, world war, thermo global thermonuclear war that the government doesn't know if it's real or not. So we almost come face to face with the actual global thermonuclear war, which would suck from all I've read. I'm pretty sure I'm about 98% sure a global thermonuclear war would suck. And um, it's scary when you hear like government people talking about using tactical nuclear weapons. That's just horrifying. But yet it's now in our conversation. Okay, so let's move on. <clears throat> I'm going to do this every week. Every time I do one of these, which is going to remind you, and I'm going to end this with a question, which is, are you still on these platforms? So over the past couple of weeks, we've seen a couple of things dealing with Facebook and Instagram that are scams, that are just mortifying. And yet, I still know millions of people who are on these platforms. One was the bushfire scam, where people were saying that they were donating money, and they were actually just stealing from people who were donating. That was on Instagram. Uh, are you still on Instagram, by any chance? And the last one, the second thing I want to mention very briefly 
was something that happened with Facebook. And this goes straight to the top. This goes to the vice president, Sheryl Sandberg, who I just do not like at all. There's just too much evidence here of, of someone like Zuckerberg who has a, an aversion to the truth. So te- there was an ad that came out that looked like it was a story in Teen Vogue. And it looked like a story about women at Facebook who were like, you know, trying to ensure that the next election was going to be on the up and up. But, but viewers started to realize there, were no, there was no credit. They didn't credit a photographer, they didn't credit the writer, et cetera. And people started to realize that this was an ad that was created by, Sand, by Facebook. And Sandberg actually ended up retweeting this as if it was a real story, as if she didn't know what was happening. And this just, again, is so mortifying. It just shows me that management at Facebook, primarily Sandberg and Zuckerberg, they just don't care. Right. And I look at the upcoming election, the 2020 election for Zuckerberg, Trump has to win because he knows if if he if Trump doesn't win, whoever comes in on the Democratic side is going to take a long, hard look at Facebook. And he does not want that to happen, which is why he had the meeting, the dinner with President Trump and Peter Thiel and didn't tell anybody and didn't tell his staff. Once again, he is a kid that is completely and utterly out of control. So, again, I'm going to end this with a question. If you're still on these networks, why on earth are you on there? Uh, that's my opinion is you should get rid of these um, as quickly as possible. Okay, the next point I'm going to make is about street photography. So street photography has been around since the advent of 35 millimeter photography, right? I have never been a street photographer, although people, some people think of me as a street photographer. I'm not. I really don't have much of an interest in it. But if you go back to the Gary Winogrands of the world and the, and the Bruce Gildens from Magnum, he, Bruce Gilden is probably the, the most modern person who really put street photography on the map. And, he, and the way that he goes about it, at least at the time, was very unique. I mean, Gilden is a quintessentially New York kind of guy. He's a little brash. He's a relatively big dude as well. And, um, and he was photographing on the streets in a way that would literally get me killed where I live. Like, I just couldn't do it here. And, uh, and Winogrand was before him. And then if you go way back, you know, 35 millimeter really allowed people to do this kind of thing. I personally have no interest in street photography. And it pains me in some ways now to see this explosion in the hipster world. And I'll throw in the film-based hipster world of these street photography people who are out basically copying what all these other photographers have done before. But when you watch them and you watch the reaction of the people they're photographing, it's like getting punched in the face often. And for me personally, I never liked street photography because I'm not talking to anyone. And when I do a project, I like to go in depth. And to do that, you have to communicate. You have to really get involved with people and get close and build trust and spend time. And street photography felt like sniping. I, don't, I also don't stand on the street with an 80 to 200 and shoot across the street at people that don't know they're being photographed. I just don't like that. I think it sets a bad precedent. And then those images show up online or an ad and people are like, what the, what the heck? So I don't really like this whole culture of kids out there jumping out in front of people on the street and blasting them and then immediately posting on social media to try to get likes. I think it just sets back people who are doing documentary work in particular. It's really hard. And I felt the brunt of this over the last decade of people that assume that I'm going to be one of these people doing that. And it's, it's not good. It makes everything I do much, much, much harder. Um, I do love random imagery so instead of working on a project, I don't necessarily think that you always have to work on a project. Walking around with a camera and making pictures is a great thing. And random photography is incredibly difficult, and in the success rate is very low, which is completely fine. But man, the street stuff, I just saw another thing this morning of some, some you know, basically ego-driven guy who just thinks he is 
he just thinks he is the best thing since sliced bread. And he has probably, God knows if he even knows that this has been done before, but just promoting the heck out of it. And the brands that are collaborating with him, it's kind of disheartening because it just it just shows the squeaky wheel gets the grease, you know? Anyway, that's my take on street photography. Not a huge fan. I want to jump on to Lyme disease, give you an update. Because a couple of weeks ago, you probably know that Justin Bieber announced that he had Lyme disease. Apparently, six months prior, he was photographed leaving a clinic with an IV looking like he was near death. And people thought he was, a meth, was on meth or coke or whatever. And he said, no, I have Lyme disease. And also, but the, here's the important part. He was having trouble getting diagnosed and getting treated. So for those of you out there who have someone you know that has Lyme or a family member that has Lyme, um, this is consistent across the board, regardless of who you are in your socioeconomic status. And the, and the first person that I can re- recall in recent memory coming out, a famous person, was the wife of Chris Christopherson, who wrote a piece in the New York Times and said, look, he was, Chris was misdiagnosed for 30 years with Parkinson's. They could never prove it. They finally, 30 years later, tested him for Lyme. He was positive, but they had trouble getting treatment and even finding doctors to talk about it. And this is something, just so those of you know, so I was diagnosed about five or six years ago. It was hell. I had two years of acute sickness, two years of partial sickness, and then slowly started to come out. I was in an event in Las Vegas last week, and the people that I had met last year at the same event came up, and I would say at least 80% of the people said, oh my God, you look healthy. So it tells you that even a year ago, I was not looking normal. And personally, I wouldn't even say that I look healthy now, but I am better than I was a year ago. But it's been the worst six years of my life in, in terms of health. So, but I've gotten to the point where I can cycle, I can hike, I can do a lot of the things that I'm doing. And so consequently, people from around the world find out about me and they call and say, will you help us? And so I spend time on the phone every week and email uh, with people around the world who can't get treatment, whose doctors have blown them off, or who the military has blown off, or they're being misdiagnosed and the doctors are saying, these are acceptable illnesses, but Lyme really isn't. And there's so much misinformation. But just to give you a little rundown here, Justin Bieber, President Bush, Ben Stiller, Alec Baldwin, Chris Christopherson, um, Avril Lavigne, Amy Tan, Daryl Hall, these are all celebrities, musicians, authors, etc. All these people have Lyme. And it sucks for them when someone like that gets Lyme, like Bieber, I feel bad for the guy. I don't really know anything about him. Uh, I really don't. I don't think I've ever heard a Justin Bieber song. I have nothing against Justin Bieber. I just don't know who he is. I mean, yes, I know who he is, but I don't know anything about him. But when someone, you know, the day that he admits that he has Lyme, I get flooded with emails and texts and calls from people saying, oh my God, the Biebs has Lyme. And my first thought is, sucks for you, great for me, and great for us. Because now the idiotic civilians who are latched onto the following celebrities kind of shake their heads and go, hmm, this Lyme disease thing, hmm, wow, maybe it's, maybe it's, it is worse than people are claiming. So it's, it's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. When I heard he got it, I was like, oh, for all those people suffering out there, this is good. Because the more celebrities, the more politicians, the more actors, the more musicians that get it, the harder it is for places like the CDC, the State Department, the American Medical Association to downplay the severity of the outbreak. Because people, it's bad. It is way, way worse than you think it is. Um, and you still have governments around the world that, that claim they don't have it, and they claim that Lyme disease isn't real. And you still have a section of the medical community who claims that Lyme isn't real. They'll basically say it's a figment of your imagination. There's no such thing as chronic Lyme. There's no such thing as brain fog. It just makes me want to reach through the TV and just absolutely neck punch these people because it's a financial thing that they're doing. 
they're bought and paid for by the insurance companies and the pharma companies. And right now, the government doesn't really have a way to make money off of Lyme. And until that day, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. So just wanted to put that out there. Okay, let's see. That was a nice positive thing. My, my crushing of street photography and, uh, and, and a little Lyme update. Whew. Uh, and then also the, the horrible social media stuff that's continuing to go on. I am going to get to an explanation of an image, my behind-the-scenes weekly description of, of a particular image that I made in the experience, which should be both funny and, uh, and interesting. So just to give you an update, a couple of months ago I bought a van. And uh, I took a trip south a few weeks ago, did some camping in the van. It was freezing, waking up in the morning in the, in the teens and low 20s in the van with no heat, um, which was still fine, doable, sunny. Um, I just came back from another trip, went over to the Nevada area, and this week I'm headed up to the Denver area to go to the outdoor retailer and talk about AG23. So I've got a speaking uh, opportunity up there, et cetera. And um, the van is great. And what I bought was a, was a Dodge ProMaster. And, and the reason I'm explaining this is I've, I've gotten this question from a million people. And the first question I typically get is, oh, did you get a Sprinter? And my, my answer is no, but there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I do like the Sprinters, uh, the Mercedes-Benz product, number one. And number two, it's a turbo diesel, which I've always loved. But there's some things about the Sprinter I don't like. Number one is the cost. They are incredibly expensive. And uh, two is they're, hard, they're more expensive to maintain. And if something really goes wrong with a Sprinter, you kind of need that certified Sprinter technician, and those can be hard to find. So the cost of ownership is much higher. Um, it is a Mercedes. Anytime something breaks on a Mercedes compared to a Dodge, it is much more expensive. Diesel also is a carcinogen. It's incredibly carcinogenic, the particle that comes out of a diesel. So it's not that gas is perfect by any stretch, but the diesel particulate is incredibly bad. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put a lot of miles on this thing. Do I really want to be spewing diesel into the world? And I was a Volkswagen turbo diesel guy that got caught up in the scandal, which oddly enough is why I ended up with a variety of different vehicles is because Volkswagen gave me the money back and blah, blah, blah. I got the Subaru, which was a lemon. And then I went to the Tacoma. I'm probably going to sell the Tacoma and get get a smaller, more economical four by four so that my wife doesn't crash my Tacoma. And so I bought the Dodge ProMaster, two-wheel drive. It's a six-speed automatic transmission that's been around for a long time. They've been running it in Europe for a long time. It's very basic. This is a basically a metal box with an engine. And what I like about it is, is just that. It's incredibly simple. It's actually way more economical than my pickup truck, believe it or not. The mileage is way better. It's way easier to drive than my Tacoma. And uh, I also like the fact that it is a perfect, it's a square so my sleeping platform in the back, I can sleep perfectly sideways in the van. I can sleep perpendicular to the actual direction of the vehicle. And in the Sprinter, I can't. I have to sleep at an angle. Um, I also like the fact that Dodge was far less expensive. Um, even brand new, you can get a, you can get a, a Dodge uh, ProMaster for a, a lot less money. Uh, and inside of my van, I went with a company out of Colorado Springs called Wayfarer. And Wayfair is, uh, they call it plug-and-play van kits. And so the entire installation of the inside of the van took those guys approximately three hours to install. And it's all modular. I can, I can take it out. I can uninstall it. I can move it, whatever. It's flooring, insulation, walls, ceiling, sleeping platform, kitchen. And I think that's it. It's super basic. It's awesome. It looks good. It's comfortable. I just did my second trip. I'm getting ready to do my third trip. I've slept primarily in frigid conditions all across the, you know, from uh, southern New Mexico to Nevada to Arizona 
and this week it'll be it'll be Denver. Although I'm I'm definitely got a place to stay in Denver outside of the van. The only other thing I'm thinking about adding on the back. Uh, well, I may add a roof rack at some point with a platform so that I can shoot from the top and then also uh, store roof boxes and stuff up there. Because when I, I have uh, plans for really long trips in this van uh, going up through Canada over to the East Coast and then up through Canada to Alaska. So I'm definitely going to need more storage than I have right now. And the other thing, I might get a trailer hitch mount and get a KLX 250 uh, dual sport motorcycle. I was a, I've been a motorcycle rider my whole life. Um, I don't have one right now. I haven't had one for a few years. The KLX is super simple. It's very basic. It's reliable, and it's small and light enough to fit on the trailer hitch. That way, when I get where I'm going, I don't need to drive the van. I can hop on the motorcycle and get out and do my errands. Or in the cases of like where the in Death Valley, where I'm working on a project right now, the van is useless off-road there, but the KLX will get me anywhere I need to go. And in Death Valley, when you're talking 5,000 square miles of desert, that motorcycle is really the only way to get out to many of these places. So that's the status I'm at right now with the van. It is a blast. If you're in the market for a van, I do like the Dodge. I do like Wayfarer. And uh, so far, it's been great. And again, it's very, very basic. The inside of the van is not some super, you know, teak, built-out, wood thing, hipster. I'm never going to do van life stuff. I'm never going to go down that crowd and try to get you convinced to follow me as a van driver. After all, it's a freaking van. Every electrician I know drives a van. I don't see them on Instagram, so why would I do that? Anyway, it's fun, and it's, and it's opened up uh, a different way of working in the field. And so the driver's seat spins around and the kitchen table extends and I have a workstation and then there's a desk that pulls out from underneath the sleeping platform and I have a second workstation. So the great thing is I pull up wherever I'm at, I close the doors, I turn on the solar lights, I have a solar generator and it basically I can sit and work. So I can make films, I can make photo projects, I can write, etc. Whereas in my truck that was virtually impossible, which is why I got the van and like I said I'm probably if you're in the market for a to totally tricked out Tacoma, let me know. Okay. Moving on, I mentioned this very briefly, but this is getting serious now, and I've mentioned this over the past few weeks. Um, AG23, the first issue, I have a copy in my hand. There are two copies in existence right now. One is with the designer in Sydney as a proof, and I got a proof from the printer, and it looks beautiful. I cannot believe it is actually happening. It's been over a year it looks beautiful. Zoe Sadikirsky did the design. We have nine contributors in the first issue. I'm going to say eight because I'm one of those contributors. I wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much to the contributors for taking a chance on this odd collaboration. Uh, I spoke about this last week in Las Vegas. That was my first chance to really talk to people about what this is, and the response was overwhelmingly positive. Denver this coming week, um, is my chance to speak at Outdoor Retailer. We're allegedly going to have the first 100 copies of the zine for people to see. Um, and that's, we're really cutting it short deadline. If we miss it, it's not the end of the world. I get to get up and talk and I do have a copy with me. But our goal is to really promote the people and the projects that are in this. That's the goal, is to promote understanding through dialogue and art. So the zine is designed that, so that you can open it in any any location and jump into a story. You don't have to read front to back because most people don't do that. Most people are right-handed. The zine goes in their left hand and they open the thing from the back. The cover is QR coded, so it jumps out to the website where those same stories and more are flushed out. And our goal is to promote understanding and two, to create a database and connection between the contributors because the contributors are from Australia, the US, Kurdistan, uh, let's see, where else? They're, they're, they're all over the place. 
And most of the contributors don't know each other. And when I look at this list of people and I look at these projects and work, I think, why don't these people know each other? Like there could be, because collab this whole thing is about collaboration. So why wouldn't the contributors collaborate? So that is a huge thing for me is to be able to say to everyone that's in it, look, here are your fellow contributors, reach out to them, and maybe there's a way for you to work together. And then ultimately, I want to be able to, when people call me to do work and assignments that I don't want to do, and I don't really do that stuff anymore, I can say, no, you shouldn't hire me. You should hire you know, Megan Wong in Sydney or Charlene Winford in Kurdistan or Andrew Kaufman in Miami or Lorenzo Princi in Sydney or wherever it is. You should hire these people. That's the ultimate goal. So 2020, this year, we have budget for more more editions. So issue two, issue three, potentially. We now will have collaboration stipends for contributors. So I'll be able to pay for your contribution in the zine. There will also be clothing donated in your name to different NGOs in regards to like Wounded Warrior Program, etc. We have a merchandise line coming. We have a third person who's now working on the zine with us, who's a young guy who's awesome. He's super intelligent on the tech side, but also knows a lot about photography and a lot about books and a lot about printing. He's a, he's a book and photography gearhead, right? That's like the best kind of person. So um, it, it's moving along. We should have these, um, the, all the copies should be um, to the Beyond Headquarters by the 30th approximately of this month. That's the goal. And then we have a mailing list of people that we think are really interesting people that we're going to mail these to. And also, there's going to be three or four ways for people to get copies of the zine. There's only 2,000 copies. They're going to go quickly. And when they're gone, they're gone. And we move on to the next one. So, And also, <clears throat> I have a full-time job. And so AG is my side job. And the same for Rick Elder, who's the director at Beyond. Rick is even, he has way more work than I do. So how he's even able to consider this, he's a, he's a mutant. He really is a mutant human being um, in all the best kind of ways. And so it's been a challenge to be able to pull this off. And it's also one of the reasons why it took a year, over a year to get this done. But it's been really interesting, and we hope that it builds a community. And the last thing I'm going to say is I'm going to remind people is when the site and the zine go live, which will be in the next few weeks, there's an open submission portal on the website, so you can submit anything you want. If you have a story, this is not about portfolios and about you saying, hey, look at my photography. This is about a story. So do you have a story to tell? Like the first issue has a story on the Panama Canal expansion by Andrew Kaufman. He spent 10 years photographing that, by the way. So this was not a little portfolio of his. This was 10 years of work. Um, we have uh, Charlene Winfred, who's working for an NGO in Kurdistan. We have her work, and, and her work, the work in the zine is not is a sort of a personal tale. Megan Wong did a story about the um, afterlife of plastic. I wrote a story about the game of Go. Uh, Lorenzo Princi submitted a piece about design with typography. We have a feature on Brian Storm from Media Storm. So these are not portfolios. These are stories, so keep that in mind. But you can submit. If your work ends up in the zine, you'll get a collaboration stipend. And then we also may run things on the website. We are going to run things on the website that don't end up in the zine, but we think that they're good and interesting. Or maybe it's a form of content like audio or motion that needs to be promoted, and we can do it on the site. We can't do it in the zine kind of thing. So um, stay tuned. Much more on the way with this, and I'm very excited about this. Um, okay, let's see here. Um, I need to ask you about Flickr. Remember Flickr? I do. So Flickr to me is a really interesting thing. And Flickr is back if you don't know that. And I don't think Flickr and maybe it'll never return to what it was in the past. 
But Flickr to me was a real photography community. And for those of you who were too young or missed out or didn't or chose not to participate in Flickr back in the day, Flickr is a really interesting platform. And to me, it was a legitimate photography community. There were a lot of talented people. There was in-depth work. You could see, you know, a certain person you could look up and you could see a lot of their work. It was not like Instagram in a way. It was mu- it was much more of an actual community than anything I've seen since then. But Flickr died out when the social came in, but it came back. But I'm curious uh, for you, those of you out there who use Flickr, what do you like about it? What do you not like about it? Um, at, back in the day, there were also a lot of uh, professional photographers that used Flickr strictly as a backup. The Flickr Pro, they would upload a copy to everything uh, and use that. But I, I have a Flickr account. Blurb asked me to get one a couple of years ago, and I did. I haven't touched it in a long time uh, because I've got 800 other things that I'm working on all the time. Um, but it's, I'm curious what your thoughts are about Flickr. So let me know about that. Um, I, moving on here, we've gone through a lot of points here. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. And one is about pandering on YouTube, but I want to start with this, what happened in Virginia on Monday of last week, which was this pro-gun, um, rally that happened in Virginia. And apparently, uh, the last, uh, midterm elections, Virginia went from red to blue, meaning from Republican to democratic leadership. And the Dems proposed some gun control measures and then took a survey, and, and a vast majority of people in Virginia were in favor of these things. But the militias got hold of this, and the online community people got hold of it, and the gun nuts got hold of it, and they descended uh, on in, into the capital in Virginia to protest the fact that they thought their guns were going to get taken away. And let me just say this. Again, I grew up in a gun household. I was We were hunting and fishing. My parents, uh, my father was a competitive shooter, rifle and shotgun, and I was a competitive shooter, shotguns only. I had a college scholarship as a shooter. Uh, You know, I am no stranger to firearms. Uh, I have not shot in years. It's not that I have anything against it. I just, I have so many other interests that it sort of fell away. And shooting for me was something I was really good at. It was not something I loved. I had been shooting a shotgun since I was a little kid. I remember getting my first shotgun, a Ruger Red Label 12 gauge with removable chokes when I was in elementary school. I got it for Christmas. Still my all-time favorite shotgun. It was beautiful. There was no tooling. It was really simple. And I, I used it to go bird hunting. I'd hunt dove and quail, put them in a smoker, smoke them all afternoon, and have dinner that night with, like, you know, fresh dove and quail. It was amazing. Again, I haven't done this in probably 35 years. But um, the, the gun crowd is all over the map. You have, you have normal people who are legal, who are sane, that talk about guns and blah, blah, blah. Then you have the other crowd. And I think a lot of these folks are the militia types that end, that end up in places like Virginia. And what was fascinating to me was them being interviewed, right? And again, we live in a free country. You can do as you please for the most part, legally. But when they're interviewing these guys, and, and there, were, there were some consistencies in the answers that I found absolutely baffling and proof, again, of how bad the internet has worked us over. So the first person I heard interview was this militia guy, and he's in full kit, you know, AR-15, modified, body armor. He looks like he's a special operations person, although he's not. He's just a militia guy. And he's like, well, you know, we knew that they were going to shut off the internet, they meaning the Democrats. They were going to shut off the internet, they were going to turn off our electricity, and they were going to go door-to-door with what they call no-knock warrants, which is they don't knock on the door, they just blow your front door in and confiscate all your guns. All of which is complete and total nonsense. The governor of Virginia literally had to go and to do a presser and say, we're not turning off the internet. We're not turning off your electricity, and we're not coming door to door. You know, the fact that he had to do that 
is astounding. What happens is people go online, and no matter how crazy or conspiratorial you are, you will find a group online, many groups, that will feed that fire, right? And it's nuts. That is, is baffling to me. And again, I'm not pointing a finger at these people and saying I'm better than these people. I'm actually really curious. I, you know, if I could get an interview with a militia leader for AG23, I would do that in a heartbeat. Because the, the AG23 is not about running one side of the story or the other. I don't care what the story is. I don't care what side the person's on. If it's interesting and provides some insight, I would run it. So, you know, even though I might not agree with the militia leader, I can sit down and have a discussion with them and say, tell me exactly why you're feeling this or tell me why do you think they're going to turn off the internet. What I'm curious about is, would, would anyone even be able to turn it off? Like, is it, are we at that point? Is there like one master switch? Someone has a power strip in their office and they accidentally step on it. Oh, I turned the internet off. Sorry. Let me turn that back on. It's like the movie Airplane where the guy unplugs the runway lights from the one power socket in the command center. And then he goes, ha, just kidding. And he plugs it back in. It's probably not easy to turn off the internet. But anyway, I'm fascinated by this group of people because here's the thing. There's a lot more of these folks than you think they are, and they're waiting for civil war. They're waiting for race war. They're waiting for the end of the world. And some of them appear as if they don't want to wait, that they want to start this race war. Because apparently there were guys arrested on their way to Virginia who were really amped up about trying to kickstart either a civil war or race war. Now, I'm no expert. But civil war and race war really seems like a drag. Um, I, I can't imagine there being anything positive about any of those particular things. And frankly, I have way too much on my plate to start a, a civil war. Um, you know, I got to go give a talk about a zine. I mean, I got really important shit to do. So anyway, what are your thoughts on the whole uh, militia militia crowd and what happened in Virginia? Thankfully, there was there was not a lot of violence and no one got hurt and no one shot anyone. That is a major plus. So let's just try and do whatever we can to keep it that way. Okay, last thing I'm going to touch on is YouTube. So I haven't made a YouTube film in a while. Uh, I've just been too busy, and uh, Mark from Advancing Your Photography, he's always reaching out saying, hey, when do you think you could make something? I just am too busy right now to do it. Um, I could be doing it right now instead of this podcast, but I just this podcast is much, much easier for me to deal with than video is. Um, eventually, I would say by the end of February, I'll be back to it. But I have to make a decision because... You know, this is something I may end up doing further and something I may stop doing. I just don't know. Um, and the one thing that makes me want to continue is that I, the other day, I had, a, uh, I had a need. So I'm looking at my current equipment, and I talked to you about this last time, about thinking about getting a Leica body. And I've already decided not to do that. So Larry, if you're listening, and I appreciate the offer of borrowing your Leica, uh, very, very kind of you, but I'm going to skip it. I'm going to keep my film stuff, keep my Leica stuff, maybe shoot film again at some point. But the truth is my life is a mess. You know, I have so many things happening. And by the way, that's my forced air heat that just came on. So hopefully it's not too deafening in the background because it's freezing here. Anyway, so I'm going to keep the Fuji stuff, but I might buy this lens, this 0.95, I think it's like a Micaton or something. It's a Chinese lens, not expensive. It might help me with one kind of photograph I'm trying to make that I can't really make with what I existingly have with the Fuji system. Um, but the other thing was, because I'm an, I'm an idiot, and like many of you, I often fall down that rabbit hole of, gee... Do I really need another camera? And then that little devil on your shoulder goes, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Then I find out that Fuji made an X-Pro3 with titanium 
upper and lower plates. And of course, if you know me, you know my love of all things titanium, including my Salsa Fargo tie bicycle. I've got, uh, I've got titanium Nikon cameras. I've never had a titanium Leica. They were just like stupid money, even going back in the day. But I saw the X-Pro3, and I thought, you know, an X-Pro3 with that 0.95 lens for the, an everyday walking around camera for what I'm doing might be kind of interesting. And so I was like, but does the X, how is the X-Pro3? Is it good? Does it actually work for someone like me? So I go to YouTube, and I type X-Pro3 review, and like an idiot. I know you're laughing. You're either crying right now or you're laughing at my stupidity. Because what comes up is the biggest train wreck I've ever seen. I cannot find a legitimate photographer using the camera, at least initially. And my first thoughts go to Charlene and Curtis Nan because I'm like, she's a legit photographer and she's in the field working. If it works for her, it's probably going to work for me. But she, didn't, I don't think, has done a review. If she did, I didn't look for it. It's my, my bad. She probably has. But I go on YouTube and it's a train wreck. It's just guys who review 150 cameras a year walking around in urban environments shooting random people and objects and being very witty and, and funny about the whole thing. And it does absolutely nothing for me whatsoever. As of someone who spent my life in photography, I need to know some certain things that none of these people know because they're not photographers. They're gearheads who review gear. That's all they do. And they do it really well. And they have millions of views because there's a million people out there who would rather talk about gear than use it but I'm not one of those folks. So this is why I'm considering continuing on YouTube, but not about reviewing gear. It's about photography education, about the things that actually matter when you're making photographs, because these guys reviewing gear 99.9% .9 of the time, within 15 seconds of looking at the review, I realize they're working in horrible lighting conditions because they don't want to take the time to wait around for the light to get good. They're not working on projects. They're not really in real world scenarios. They're randomly shooting random things and obsessing over all the stuff that doesn't matter. Does it allow you to make the kind of picture you make? That's the thing. Is there something about the Expo 3? Is the shutter speed too slow? I mean, not shutter speed. Is the autofocus too slow? Does that weird preview screen, is that a problem on the back? Um, what is the re reality of what the camera is? So when I think about photo education, and I did the same thing. When people started writing me about my YouTube films and saying, no one else is doing this, and you're giving me a style of education that no one else is giving me, my first thought was, that's not, that's not accurate because that's impossible. There has to be other people. And I'm sure that there are, but I certainly can't find them on YouTube. I've, most of the time, it's either it's strange education from people who've never had photo education and who don't really seem to be that skilled with, photograph with photography. They're really skilled on the technical side. So anyway, that's the one thing that kind of gives me hope. But is that enough for me to keep making films or to do an EDU course or something like that with YouTube? I don't know. Um, I've had so many meetings as of late with interesting people that would that want to work together on projects that could just be really wonderful. Like, for example, am I going to not work on AG23 to work on a photo EDU program? No. The short answer is no. And AG23 is not really about me. It's about all the contributors that are in there. And yes, I contributed to the first issue, but it's not about my photography. It's about a concept that has nothing to do with me. Um, and I will submit a second story for the second issue, I just realized, because I have a body of work and I'm hoping to rope a fellow photographer in who has an even better body of work on the same subject and really try to promote her and her work and her story and her lifestyle. 
So that's that's the goal with it. So I would rather do that than work on my own stuff and promote myself. But YouTube is interesting, and I do find what I'm doing fills a niche that potentially is not being filled. So I'm curious about what your thoughts are about that, if you think I'm completely off base or whatever. So I think that's it for now. Oh, I forgot. The behind the scenes, my, my probably the best part of this whole thing. Okay, we're at 35 minutes. I'm going to try to do this under five minutes. But every week, and I did the first one last week, I'm trying to describe um, the scenario that happened behind a, a specific image or series of images that I did. And this one deals with a sewer. This one deals with the sewer that runs from Nogales, Arizona to Nogales, Mexico. My first real job in photography was an intern at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix in 1993. I had graduated from school in 1992 with a degree in photojournalism, and I tried for a year to get an internship. And I tried all over the United States. I ha almost had a fellowship to the Middle East that would have taken me through multiple cities, working for multiple media organizations. I absolutely got screwed by the organization that put this on. They, they led everyone on to believe that we all had a chance to win this, um, when in actuality they had a specific demographic of person already in mind. So all of us who, who applied and, and potentially should have or could have gotten that job got screwed. That was my first experience with knowing that things in the photo industry were not always on the up and up. Uh, the same thing happened at multiple internships around the, the country. I got calls from multiple photo editors saying, I want to give you this internship, but I can't. Uh, and here's the reason why. And it was frustrating, I have to say. After the fourth or fifth time I got that call, um, and the fellowship to the Middle East, the person, the director called me and said, if you don't win, it has nothing to do with your work. And I said, what do you know that I don't? And he said, this was slated for a specific person even before we opened the admissions. And I was pissed because I had to write essays. I had to get other people to write essays for me. It was really insulting. Um, but anyway... I landed an internship at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix. I don't know particularly how I got it. I think someone may have made a call on my behalf and I got it. I don't really know. But anyway, I got there. And they started giving me really good assignments right off the bat. Um, the end of the first week, I flew to Alabama to Charles Barkley's parents' house and mom's house. And I photographed her and Charles's grandmother while the NBA playoffs were going on. I had no idea how, how to do what I was doing, but I got there. I was super nervous, made some pics, etc. But I got an assignment to photograph kids who were living in the sewer underneath Nogales, Arizona, and Mexico, and sneaking into the country at night, into the U.S., climbing the fences, breaking into places, and stealing spray paint that they could then huff. And apparently gold spray paint is the, is the color of choice. There's some ingredient in it that makes the high even more powerful. So I go down there with a writer, and we have to go into the sewers. And that's about like what it seems. It's bad. So I'm trying to figure this out. And the Border Patrol is involved in some way, shape, or form, like consulting or helping us, at least at least initially. And I remember what the guy said to me was, um, you need to buy a pair of rubber boots. And when you wear them into the sewer, don't let them touch anything else. And within a week, they will have been eaten through with whatever chemicals and stuff is in that water. So don't take them inside. Don't put them in your car. Um, just make sure to leave them outside and hose them off, and they're still going to get eaten through. So whatever's in that sewer is nasty. So we get down there, and I'm driving around, and I'm looking at these sewers, and I'm like, this is not going to be easy. So I get the boots on. The reporter's there. The reporter's like, I don't think he was too keen on going into the sewer, if I remember correctly. And so I climb down over this chain link fence, down the chain link fence to the concrete wall, 
slide down the concrete wall into the sewer and it's pitch black, right? So I'm staring from the sunlight into this, this sewer and it is pitch black and I can hear voices inside the sewer and it's creepy. And I'm like, okay, this is not good. So I put a strobe on wide angle. I have no idea what I'm going to get. And I start walking into this sewer and I get about 50 feet in and I realize that there are side tunnels and the side tunnels are really small, circular. I'm in a, I'm in a giant rectangular thing with a stream of water in the bottom. Water, huh, that's wishful thinking. And <clears throat> the side tunnels are filled with people also who have been, must have been crawling into the side tunnels. Just think about that. It's terrifying. And so I'm like, uh, this is not so good. And the pictures are going to suck because I can't see. I can't see to focus on anything. I'm going to be firing a strobe blindly into the dark which I then, like an idiot, decide to test out. So now I'm about, I don't know, 100, 100 feet, maybe further, I don't know, 100 yards, not probably not 100 yards. There's still like a, a faint, faint, faint glow of the opening in the distance behind me. And I pop a strobe just to see what it looks like in front of me. And right after I do this, I hear some object come by me and land on the concrete behind me, and it's not a light object. It is like a piece of metal that has come out of the darkness at warp speed past me, and I real realize what it is. It's a railroad spike. So, you know, the spikes they used to hold down the railroad tracks, which if had it hit, hit me in the head, it probably would have killed me. And so whoever I popped the strobe at is none too happy with uh, Uncle Dano being in the being in the sewer with a with a camera and all of a sudden comes a a rainbow of railroad spikes in my direction and now I'm like survival mode I got to get out of here so I turn and I'm in these big rubber boots and I'm trying to run and these railroad spikes are flying past me bouncing off the ground ting 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 and so I make it back to the entrance the reporter is up on street level still and now I'm like who cares about photography I'm like getting out of here without taking a railroad spike in the head and as I'm fumbling around trying to get up the concrete in my now, God knows, covered with what rubber boots, I'm like, there's no traction. And these things are still flying. And then I hear the reporter say, hey, that guy has a knife. And I turn around and some guy has come out of the tunnel, come out of the sewer with a knife. Now, on the surface, you're like, oh, that's terrifying. It actually wasn't really that terrifying. I had had some training in the past um, in terms of like fighting. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. And so I was like, okay, not a big deal. But the, what was going for me was that the guy was just hammered. He was hammered on something. It could have been paint, booze, drugs. I don't know. It was a combination of stuff. And for those of you who don't know, if you're going to fight, you really don't want to be hammered. Uh, it's definitely going to slow down your, your effectiveness. And sure enough, he came at me with this knife. Um, but it, he telegraphed his movements. Um, it was like I, had, like I could have had a picnic waiting for this knife to come flying in my direction. And so the reporter's like, hey, he's trying, he's got a knife, he's going to try to stab you. And I spun around and here he comes at me and, uh, you know, he, his arm arcs way back first. And, and then it, it, come at, it comes at me from the side. And so all I had to do was like a, a, a footwork thing to get around it. And then he went flying by and like sl slammed into the concrete wall and fell down. It was like a bad movie. Uh, and then I got traction, oddly enough, and uh, got to the chain link fence and flopped over. And uh, I was like, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with this story. And we ended up going over to a rail yard where a lot of these kids had come up and had stolen paint the night before and were hanging out in the rail yard. And it was really sad 
because these kids, the paint, when you huff paint, it, it attacks a certain section of your brain that deals with motor skills and, and, and just absolutely destroys your brain. It eats it away to the point where you might be fine one day and then the next day you start to be able to lose your speech patterns. Your, your movement is not the same. And it was really sad. My pictures were horrible. I made some pictures in the train yard. Um, but they were nothing special, and I never really did get back into the sewers. That was pretty much all I needed to know to know that I was not welcome in the sewer. Uh, we thought about going into Mexico and starting from that side, and I thought that's not going to end well. Um, so let's let's just call it a day. Uh, but that was my my Nogales sewer story. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you take that as a lesson that you probably should avoid the sewers, uh, whether you're in Chicago or Nogales or wherever you are. Definitely not a good place to be. So thanks for tuning in this week. I appreciate it. And I'll be back next week, probably, or the week after with another loaded segment that I've already got uh, lined up for you. Thanks.